Okay, we are live. We have a great show coming up because we have two very, very excellent guests. Of course, we have Alexander Mercurius in London. Mm-hmm. We have the one and only Gonzalo Lira joining us. And we have the magnificent Brian Berletic. Gonzalo, Brian, how are you? I will have all your information down below in the description <laughs> box as well as as a, as a pinned comment as well. But how are both of you gentlemen doing today? Oh, well, you said that you're going to have two excellent guests, and I only see Brian here. Who else is the second? It's great to be here, as always, gentlemen. Thank you very much for having me on. I appreciate it. Uh, and like, likewise, thank you so much. And uh, I'm always happy to share the screen with Gonzalo as well. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Let's say a quick hello to everyone that is watching us on Rockfin, on Odyssey, on Rumble. Hit that like button on Rumble, everybody, and on thedoran.locals.com. Hello to everyone in the Locals chat. How is everyone doing? And to everybody that is watching us on YouTube, hello to our moderators, William Justice. Who else is moderating? I'm moderating. Gonzalo's moderating. William is moderating. And I think Valies. Hey, Valies. Good to see you. Oh, yes, is with us as well. Reckless Abandon. How are you doing, Reckless Abandon? Hey, Reckless. Good to see you. Good to see you. All right. Thank you to our moderators. We, uh, you guys are the best. We love our moderators. Well, it feels, it feels like the band is getting back together again. Whenever I do these shows, I figure I'm, I'm the guitar player because I'm the only smoker. And, uh, you know, Brian, he's the drummer. And uh, Alexander, Alex rather, is the uh, bass player, and Alexander is the front man. He's our Freddie well, Mercury. Well, so. on, that, on that, let's let's pass it over to, to, to Freddie. Let's pass it over to uh, to Alexander. To the front man. And uh, Alexander, mm. the the topic is is Ukraine, Bakhmut. Lots going mm. on. Lots of things that we don't know as well, and a lot of questions as to why recent moves have been made and why mm. recent decisions have been yeah. taken. So well, Alexander, Brian, Gonzalo, I pass it off yeah. to you guys. Yeah, and, and can I say what better guests to discuss all this uh, with um, the, than, than the two guests we have? And it's a gl- joy to have you both, can I just say. Well, it's a very, very interesting and very complicated time because this battle of Bakhmut, I think it's becoming actually more complicated. I don't want to suggest it's, you know, at its end point, it might be, but we now have a situation where the Russians, I stress it's the Russians, are, are starting to say the place is in a cauldron. In other words, it's effectively operationally surrounded. That doesn't mean that there's a, you know, a, a Russian soldier, Wagner Operations Group soldier, you know, standing on every meter of ground that's, you know, around Bakhmut. What they mean by that is that the Russians can now uh, launch artillery strikes on the main roads. The main roads are now becoming impossible to use in any sustained way. And of course, we also have the Russian artillery can strike apparently pretty much any Ukrainian group of people, large group of people, vehicles that are trying to enter Bakhmut across the mud and the and the country lanes. And the British Ministry of Defence is telling us today that the conditions weather conditions are turning bad 
that these country lanes and these fields are becoming extremely muddy because there's a lot of rain. That's what the British Ministry of Defence is saying, and they're hardly likely to be a pro-Russian side. Now, at the same time, we're getting lots and lots of rumours about a possible Ukrainian attempt to break into Bakhmut. In other words, that there's still large numbers of Ukrainian troops outside this surrounded area. They're thinking of trying to punch a hole in. We'll see whether that happens. There's also Alexander, lots of rumors. Uh, Go on. No, I just wanted to ask you about that rumor because quite frankly, it sounds to me insane that they would try to punch in again and put more well, troops into a losing cause. I mean, it, this, this is like the the, 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 the the perennial gambler who keeps doubling down on a losing bet, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, well, I'm very glad you mentioned the doubling down comes from gambling, because when Rishi Sunak talked about the West needing to double down over Ukraine, I made precisely that point. And a number of people came back to me and said, no, 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 that isn't true. <laughs> and I checked out, and it is, in fact, from gambling. But anyway, Put that aside. Yes, you may be right, but let's let's talk about that in a moment because there's Bachman. There's a counterattack talked about about Cap Bachman. There is a larger Ukrainian counterattack that some people are now talking about when and all kinds of preparations and there's a lot about it in the Economist. And then we're getting all kinds of diplomatic activity. We got the Chinese um, uh, foreign minister traveling to Moscow a short time ago, causing all sorts of angst whilst he was in Munich. He wasn't the Chinese foreign minister, but Wang Yi the man in charge of Chinese foreign policy. Xi Jinping is apparently heading to Moscow very soon. And on top of that, we've had this extraordinary, most mysterious trip by Olaf Scholz to Washington. So he goes to Washington, no German media with him, no German businessmen with him. He arrives in Washington. He's driven directly to the White House. He has a meeting which lasts for an hour, a bit more than an hour, with Biden. No aides apparently are present, no officials. Apparently, I'm not even sure whether there were interpreters there. So this is a pure one-to-one -one meeting. There's no press conference and Schultz flies back to Berlin. And we don't know what was actually discussed. The White House readout is extremely uninformative. But all sorts of strange things going on all around us. So I think this is a rather complex situation. And I think the best place to start, actually, apart from Bachmut, where we can talk about the situation, is also that um, programme you did recently, Brian, about the latest Pentagon weapons delivery. Because it's clear that in Europe, we are now, our cupboard in terms of weapons is, is empty. It's always ultimately, I mean, 80%, 90% of the weapons Ukraine has received have come from the US, or so it seems to me. And it's now increasingly looking as if the US cupboard is also starting to get, get empty too. And I, I can't help but think that on the battleground, things are becoming, starting to be shaped around this. On the one hand, we've had Bakhmut, which has had terrible effects on Ukraine. I mean, it's thousands of people have lost their lives there. We have this talk of the offensive, and we have all these diplomatic activities going on on the side, the Ukrainian offensive. Note, it's always a Ukrainian offensive. Nobody talks about a Russian offensive. There's been no official announcement from Russia about an offensive. So 
I have to say, coming back to Gonzalo's point about doubling down, it looks to me as if we could perhaps change the gambling metaphor and it perhaps last throw <laughs> might be, uh, uh, um, you know, where these offensives are concerned, both the attempt to break back into Bakhmut, perhaps this spring-summer offensive that Ukraine might be about to launch. Maybe, maybe we're close to the last throw. If it doesn't turn out, then what? And then that's that's me. That's where I stop. That's where I stop, rather. Brian, is the cupboard running empty? I mean, are we getting to the point where we can only provide the Ukrainians with dribs and drabs? It's no longer realistic for us to maintain, sustain the kind of level of military supplies that we have been doing up to now. I think we've been watching that deplete for months now. We've watched the, these packages shrink in size and in the variety of weapon systems that they're sending. Uh, they've been talking about a shortage of artillery shells for months and months now. This was something that from the very beginning they were not prepared to do. And as they're sending these shells to Ukraine, that was it. There, there weren't more coming that they would be able to to eventually send Ukraine. That That's coming in several years. And even the expansion of artillery shell production that they've been talking about in the United States, it, you know, in two or three years when that is finished, if it if it is finished, uh, it's still not going to be enough. It's, it's only going to be able to sustain the levels that Ukraine is losing at right now. It, it will not be able to match or exceed what Russia is producing. Uh, so, so there's that. And I, the last couple of packages that the U.S. has sent, one of them was all just contracts for things to eventually built, be built someday. And the last one, they were listing these different munitions that they usually include quantities for, and the quantities were missing. And they've done that the last couple of packages. And, and the reason why is because those numbers have been getting smaller. People were paying attention to these numbers, and they don't want to list the numbers uh, because they're getting embarrassingly small, I think. It's it's not as if Russia is waiting for Pentagon press releases to figure out how much uh, aid the U.S. is sending. They have their own means to determine that. This is about maintaining the illusion of perpetual support for Ukraine, for everybody else. Uh, and so I I think that is a huge problem that they're they're finally going to have to face. They're, they're not going to be able to hide from it anymore. I mean, I've always heard throughout my life from military people that, you know, amateurs talk tactics, uh, professionals talk logistics. And it's turned out to be, you know, absolutely true in this war. I mean, we're struggling apparently to find tanks. I have to say I'm shocked, actually, if I have to say, how unprepared the West has been for this war, how utterly um, run down Western militaries have been for so long, for so many years, apparently, how run down our production capacities are. But, you know, I, I was involved, as I've said many times, I've, I've done work on the industrial side. And I listen to things like the sort of things that people like Joseph Borrell and others say about, you know, cranking up um, artillery production, munitions production. And I, I, I think these people do not understand that you, you can't just conjure things like this up by throwing money. It, it, it doesn't work like this. 
you have to yeah. set up a whole production chain you have to train people you have to sort out the factory space you have to organize suppliers it takes time to do this even if you're talking about something as relatively straightforward as shells uh, it it's not quite as easy as i think people like some of the un officials i'm oh, sorry us officials and some of the eu officials appear to think yeah i think that there are two issues here uh and and both issues are basically miscalculations by the washington state department uh people you know the, the usual suspects victoria newland anthony blinken and the two misjudgments were as follows number one they were uh, convinced that the sanctions uh, back in the spring of last year uh, would completely cripple the Russian economy. And mm -hmm. they genuinely believed that it would uh, lead to a regime change in Russia. Mm -hmm. And of course, that we know failed catastrophically. And mm -hmm. on the other hand, I think that they have had this sense that the American military is so endless and so enormous and it has mm -hmm. so much gear of all kinds that they never thought to themselves that that gear is limited. There's a limited supply of it. No. And they can't quite believe that this conflict has burned through so much gear so quickly. Because, I mean, do keep mm -hmm. in mind, we're, we're talking about, uh, you know, the, the, the last reputable figures I've heard about uh, how many shells the Russians are sending over is something like 40,000 per day. Nobody in their right mind would have said that that would be uh, something that uh, would happen say, a year and a half ago. But here we are. And that rate of attrition on both sides, of course, but the Russians actually having the industrial backing to maintain this tempo, whereas the West, the Americans do not. I don't think that the, the Washington establishment really calculated those two issues. And those, those two enormous miscalculations based on false premises or premises that were not examined has led to this, I think it's shock on the part of the West. Mm. And that's why it seems to me that they're panicking now and they don't know where to go. Mm. Absolutely. Can I just say, and it comes back directly to some of the points that we made, and you know, the question of, am of ammunition shortages. It it's been very much discussed in practical terms about what's been happening in Bakhmut. Um, in of all places, the Kiev Independent, now they did a law yeah. piece. They went. They went. They did. A, they interviewed twelve, apparently about twelve Ukrainian soldiers, and they talk about the fact that they are severely outshelled, that they're very heavily out of guns, and the problem is. And you know, I'm, I'm trying to find the right place, but probably I won't. But maybe you've all read it. But I mean, the yeah. the point is, uh, there's a Ukrainian soldier who's complaining that the, the Russians are able to fire shells at them continuously. And sometimes, you know, you know exactly where the Russian guns are located, where the armored vehicles that are firing these things are, are located. But there is no Ukrainian counterfire because there are no shells. There are just not enough shells. And that's... If you want to understand what's happened in Bakhmut, clearly there's been a lot of you know, tactics and a lot of infantry fighting as well. We mustn't underestimate that. But ultimately, it's again, it's the artillery. And one of those Ukrainian soldiers described how it works, what the Russians do. They send three or four people towards the Ukrainian front lines. 
The Ukrainians react, shoot at these people, give away their position, and then the Russian artillery opens fire on them. And that's mm -hmm. apparently been the pattern of the battle right the way through. It's about, ultimately, ammunition and shells. And yes, there's surveillance devices, there's drones overhead, there's all of these things. And the effect is horrendous. I mean, um, the, the Russian defense minister has just said that Ukraine suffered 11,000 dead in February. We can't corroborate that figure, but it's <coughs> not implausible based on some of the things Ukraine itself is saying. But it it's it's like I have to say to me it it feels like a conveyor belt of death actually, and this has been going on week after week, month after month, and ultimately it's happened because of massive political miscalculations. I mean, really disastrous ones yeah. in the West, and massive logistical ones as well, and an inability to adapt policy to to to, to realities i mean um am, am i saying anything that doesn't seem right here no not at all and and i would also say that uh you know now in the west they're floating the idea of a ceasefire you see it in a lot of different points that they're saying oh we should you know have a ceasefire because the russians are running out of ammunition <laughs> and and of course you know the ceasefire could have been gotten back in april of last year, and they were inches from, from the closing. And I mean, we retrospectively now realize. And mm -hmm. so the fact that now they're floating it is, um, how can I put it? I, I've had uh, quite a bit of experience in business. And, uh, you, you know, when you're negotiating with a counterparty, a lot of times, you know, one counterparty thinks that they're stronger and they demand something and, and, and you know, it doesn't happen. I mean, they, they have a, a deal on the table and, and the, the stronger or alleged or the the, the counterparty that thinks that's stronger says, no, 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 I'm not going to take that deal. It's not good enough. And then later mm -hmm. circumstances or the realization dawns on them that they're not as strong as they thought. And they come crawling back to the negotiating table and say, hey, give me that deal that you were offering before. I'll, I'll sign it. But of course, the other side realizes that they're the strong ones. And so they have no mm -hmm. intention of signing that deal. So the, the notion that this uh, conflict is going to end by some sort of ceasefire is laughable because the Russians mm -hmm. have the West's number. The West is running out of ammunition. Uh, the, uh, as, uh, the Kiev regime is running out of troops, quite frankly, and, and catastrophically and horribly. And the, the West doesn't know where to go, whereas the Russians politically, in terms of their own population, have the will to go all the way. As everybody knows, you know, the great criticism that's going on in Russia right now is that Putin is going too soft and he should just level the whole country and just take it over already, you know, get it done already. And so the Kremlin has all the cards at this time in the conflict. Ryan, I, I think you would agree. Yeah, yeah. I, well, I, I, something that uh, both you and Alexander said, I mean, I, I want to point out that a sound mind wouldn't have pursued this proxy war in the first place. This yeah. was a, a decision made by the United States, by policy circles and, and interests there who realized they're running out of time to reassert American primacy over the entire globe, not just with Russia, but also China. Yeah. And they're they're rushing this this whole process when I believe the window of opportunity has al already long since closed. Now, uh, I've noticed in the Kiev Independent as well, they were talking about the BBC and Media Zona 
uh, uh, count that they're keeping of Russian dead, and they're saying it's around 16,000, which is almost a tenth of what uh, Kiev and Washington and London and everyone else has been saying it was. And when you put that together with the fact that the West has also said that around 100,000 uh, Ukrainian soldiers have perished, uh, probably more than that, actually, it's very obvious why that is. It's because uh, Ukraine is completely outgunned by Russia. So we, we keep hearing from the West that Russia will will run out of shells or they are running out of shells. But the the uh, and, and it's it's terrible that it has to come down to this. But the, the body count that even the West and Ukraine are admitting to says otherwise. It says they're they're not running out and they're not going to run out. Uh, uh, I, I see people talking about uh, Prigozhin, and he's complaining about ammunition again, uh, and talking about uh, the the possibility of Wagner getting encircled. Uh, it's, it's it's not that that's impossible for that to happen. I guess we could we could talk talk about what's actually going on in and around Bakhmut, uh, but that's something that will happen only if really really bad mistakes are made on the Russian side. So o overall. Uh, the, the, the ammunition, the military industrial output, the, these were things that everyone should have known before this started. Mm -hmm. Russia knew about it. They were we saw them preparing mm -hmm. for this for years. And now the West has painted themselves into this corner. And uh, just like Gonzalo is talking about, uh, how do they get out of this? They they want they, they want a ceasefire. Uh, we, we see even even at this point, the West is still talking about, well, when whenever the fighting stops, we're just going to rearm Ukraine <laughs> yes. more. No. So, so why incentive? ceasefire? You know, what, what incentive would you have for a ceasefire? Exactly. Yeah. Well, exactly. Oh, so, way, I just want to make a, make a quick point about uh, uh, Wagner and Prigozhin and that whole thing. To me, this whole Prigozhin thing that, you know, he's blabbing and having fights with here and there and whomever, it kind of like reminds you of, you know, Patton Montgomery kind of conflict during the Second World War. You know, when, when they kind of like know that they're winning, then all kinds of petty little jealousies and infighting starts popping up. It means absolutely nothing. And him complaining about the uh, about his uh, Wagner people not having enough ammunition, I, I think it's just a positioning and anybody hanging their hat on that particular peg is just and thinking that this will lead to the, the collapse of the Russians and, and so forth. They're just deluding themselves. And this mm -hmm. kind of jockeying for position uh, among uh, winning generals happens in every mm -hmm. conflict. And I think it means nothing, quite frankly. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think there's some truth to that. I mean, certainly what Prigozhin is doing is he's keeping himself very much center stage. I mean, he's all he's he's there all the time. But we see him we yeah. see him continuously now. I mean, whereas, you know, a few months ago, he was the invisible man. Now he's become the ubiquitous man. He yeah. gives us a running commentary constantly of what's going on in uh, Ukraine. And, of course, he's also running, I think, some very unwise feuds with yeah. some very powerful people in Moscow. I, I, but that's his problem. I mean, you know, I'm yeah. not going to go there and uh, stress or worry about that. I mean, anything can happen in a, in a war situation. There's large numbers of Ukrainian troops. He, by the way, has just said he thinks there's 20,000, around twelve to 20,000. Ukrainian Jesus. troops in Bakhmut. Now, you know, how he knows that, I don't know, but that's what he said. But there's large numbers of Ukrainian troops, not just in Bakhmut, but nearby. I think it's highly likely, this is my own guess, since they're not prepared to pull out 
and they're not prepared to try to pull out. They're not prepared to negotiate a truce to get their men out. They're not prepared to tell them to surrender. It's logical to me as a non-military person that perhaps they will try some kind of an attack to try and relieve this force there or to encircle the Wagner forces and all of those things. Now, you know, that I, I'm not going to go ahead and say that's not going to succeed. But I have to say, if it does succeed, it's very much contrary to the trend of the fighting in Bakhmut up to now. And again, maybe I'm talking like a civilian now, but I, I, I can't imagine that war, different as it is, is so very different from what happens in civilian life. If, you know, if, if, for example, in a court case, somebody's losing, generally they go on losing. I mean, if in, you're know, talking about a particular battle, it, it doesn't reverse itself suddenly unless something extremely unexpected happens, which, of course, it may, but, you know, yeah, I, I'm not happen. going to predict. But, yeah. but to your point, uh, uh, Alexander, I think that what, what's going on is that they put so many of their chips on, the, on Bakhmut to continue the gambling metaphor that now that it's proving to be a bust as a bet, they don't know where to go. And they're thinking to themselves, well, we'll just send more troops or something. Something will turn up. Something will turn around. Because psychologically, I mean, Zelensky was in front of the American Congress when he did that, uh, you know, blitzkrieg mm -hmm. visit to Washington. Mm -hmm. And he said in front of the whole Congress, the, the joint session, he said that Bakhmut was, you know, going to be held on to the last man, that that was the, the decisive battle. And the decisive battle is apparently being lost. And yeah. so I think that on a political level, it is catastrophic. Mm -hmm. And I wonder whether an outright loss of Bakhmut Okay, I mean, not not merely a retreat, but an outright loss. Will that just severely crash the American uh, political support for this conflict? I mean, not not from the um, not not from the Biden administration, but from the uh, from the other people in the political establishment in the United States. I think that this might be the kiss of death, insofar mm. as that support. What do you guys think, Ron? Well, I I, I actually I I, I want to talk about what's going on with. Uh, Bakhmut, because before before we, before we started the live stream, sorry, um, I'm just going to get coffee. <laughs> we we were talking about how you know uh, people on the Ukrainian side talking about what well, well you know you've been talking about this for so long. It's taking so long for Russia to take <laughs> yeah. Bakhmut. We, we we see a lot of complaints about this, but this is the way Russia has decided to fight this this conflict in the first place. They've decided to fight it in a, a very incremental way. And the focus has been on attrition, not on territory. As a matter of fact, we've seen them very willing to give up territory, no matter how politically damaging it would be, because militarily it made so much more sense uh, in, in the long term. We can see that that strategy is paying off. As a matter of fact, everything that we see now about Ukraine running out of weapons, running out of ammunition, the West running out of ammunition. They've emptied their, their arsenals into Ukraine. They have nothing left. It'll be years before they can produce more. That's all specifically because of the way Russia chose to, to fight this conflict. They are not doing these big arrow offenses because just as Ukraine learned, when you do that, even if you have the manpower and the equipment to take territory, you are going to lose huge amounts of men and equipment in, in a modern uh, conflict where both sides are, are more or less even in terms of the type of weapons they have, uh, the, the, the you know the prepared defense lines, uh, air defense systems to prevent uh, air superiority. 
this is this is the outcome. So this is a very deliberate choice by Russia, and it has paid off. And they're not concerned about how long it's taking to take Bakhmut. All they're concerned about is that it serves as a black hole, pulling in Ukrainian troops and equipment. Uh, I, I was listening to both uh, Alexander and Alex's videos about this over the last couple of days. There's these uh, there are rumors about Ukraine possibly the first leopards they get moving them into the area and, and possibly using them in a counter attack. Uh, and if this is true, and we, sh we should keep an eye out, we don't know if it's true or not, but uh, if it is true, if they are taking their best trained men and their, their latest equipment and they're throwing it into this, this kind of confirms the thesis that Russia is putting pressure all along the line of contact to spoil preparations for the, the Ukrainian spring offensive. They're going to be spending men and equipment that were meant for that offensive. They're going to be spending it now instead of on the offense at a time of their own choosing. They will be uh, spending it because Russia is forcing them to spend it. And I think people should think about that instead of being caught up on these these very meaningless metrics of how much territory and how quickly it's being taken, because in this conflict, that doesn't matter. Absolutely. Can I say one of the other effects of the fighting in Bakhmut uh, is that for the first time you're starting to see more and more articles in certainly the British media but also the American media about the enormity of Ukraine's losses. This has been a subject which at the start of the war wasn't emphasized. I mean they talked about Russian losses. They didn't talk about Ukrainian losses and this is beginning to feed through. There was one particularly distressing one which I read in The Guardian which is about as pro-Ukrainian newspaper as you will find anywhere on the earth and it it says that uh, does Europe want Ukrainians as living partners or as dead heroes and it talks about where are most Ukrainian flags now this is written by the way by a Ukrainian who is a very very strong supporter of the Maidan uh, revolution who is a very very strong opponent of Russia talks about Putin in the most savage words. Where are most Ukrainian flags? Now they fly in the cemeteries of our cities and towns where funerals take place nonstop. And then further down, since our military authorities keep silent about Ukrainian losses, avoiding these statistics of horror for strategic reasons, the cemetery with its newly planted woods of flags is where the body count becomes concrete visible and speaks the truth of death and that's in the guardian and people in the britain are now reading that so you know which as i said is different from what they were reading before that is what attrition does it it, it is killing people in thousands and can i just come back to what you said brian about you know that the russians are pushing all along the front lines. Can I ask you, does it also perhaps make sense to think that what the Russians are also doing is that they're laying siege to places, Bakhmut, Vogledar, places in the north, Kupiansk, wherever, which they know that the Ukrainians have to defend if they're going to keep the their line functional. And that, in effect what the Russians are doing by pressing on these sort of places 
is they're forcing the Ukrainians to come to them. So where the artillery comes in, is this something that makes logical sense to you? That That's exactly what I think they're doing. I, I think it's yeah. uh, a spoiling effort ahead of the planned Ukrainian offensive. Ukraine blabbers about its offensives months in advance, uh, telegraphs to the entire planet what they're going to do, and then Russia can just figure out uh, how to confound it. Uh, we, we remember them preparing those tank traps, the dragon's teeth, the trenches, the uh, bunkers, all of, all of these defensive positions. Months and months ago, they were, they were preparing this. They mobilized these 300,000. We see the Western media talk about uh, the losses of Wagner. Well, that's Wagner. It's a private military company that all of Ukraine's military is unable to stop around Bakhmut. And I, I, I don't hear the Western media talking about these 300,000 mobilized Russian reservists that are still waiting to go in. I, I did hear Michael Kaufman. He's um, a U.S.-based Ukrainian-born, one of these uh, think tank analysts. And he, he made the point that these reservists haven't been committed yet. Uh, yeah. So so that that should that should tell people that this is not the main offensive. This is just as you say, they're putting this pressure to force Ukrainian troops to come to them uh, in areas where they have prepared, art, just as you say, artillery. They have this huge advantage uh, of artillery. I think it was the Wall Street Journal. They said that Ukraine has something like 300 artillery pieces, yeah. just 300. They started out with over a thousand. Now they have yeah. 300. Russia has well over a thousand. So they're, they are so completely outgunned. They're out of ammunition. They're out of guns. They're out of, out of everything. And, and now they're going to where Russia dictates they go and fight. How do you launch an offensive where the other side has this enormous advantage in artillery and shells? I mean, it, it, it doesn't seem to me to, I mean, I don't really understand that. Uh, you you can't you can't and you shouldn't but they're doing it anyway out of political mm -hmm. necessity uh, mm -hmm. you know Russia does not say well we're going to do this big winter offensive they never said that they never announced that they started so they yeah. they always have all of this latitude to play with Ukraine says we're not giving this up we're not giving anything up we're going to do this offensive at this time they paint themselves continuously into these corners that they then have to fight their way out over and over and over again. And it's because they and their Western sponsors are obsessed with optics. I, I kind of want to go back to that, the Guardian piece where the, this uh, pro-Ukrainian author is frustrated with uh, the, the huge losses Ukraine is suffering. And uh, I just want to point out that since 2014, that was always the plan. The US overthrew the Ukrainian government uh, and this was always meant to be a proxy war against Russia, fought entirely at the cost of the Ukrainian people. And that is what's playing out right now. And I just wish people like this woke up much sooner uh, before it came to this. I want to point out something that I, I think that uh, a, a key issue is the political necessity of both sides. Because uh, on the one hand, the Kiev regime requires the political backing of the West. So they have to make these big announcements and these big rah-rah, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. Whereas the Russian military has the full political support of the Kremlin. And the Kremlin basically says, do what you do best and do it as you see fit. And if you have to give up territory, we'll take the political hit. That's the big difference. Because, you know, the, the Ukraine uh, side, the Kiev regime, could never give up a piece of territory 
such as Kherson, for instance, because of the military necessity. Politically, it would be impossible. And, and that shows the weakness of the Kiev regime. It's all political, whereas the Russians, they're looking at it, as, especially after the summer, when uh, clearly negotiations were not going to happen anymore, and they would just have to grind through this war and, and get it done as a, as a war. They're still calling it the SMO, the Special Military Operation, but it is a war. And the Russians are treating it as such. And they're throwing out the window any kind of political consideration. They're just grinding away to demilitarize, denazify, and, and, and free the Donbass, and they're succeeding. And, and so I think that that is the key issue, the political dimension, which the Russians have firmly in hand, and they're letting mm. uh, Gerasimov and uh, Surovikin do as they see fit, and no mm. questions asked. I'm going to add something else to that, which is that, of course, you're quite right, Ukraine, there are political pressures within Ukraine itself that do what Brian said, launch these unwise offensives. But of course, the major pressure for these offensives comes from the West. It's the yeah. West that's constantly yeah. telling it's, Ukraine, it's, you must it, go on the, the attack. Yeah, the political um, pressure from the West. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I found it quite astonishing, actually, just a few weeks ago, around, you know, just before the new year, I think it was, that somebody, I, I can't remember who it was, who came along from the US and said to Ukraine, look, you've got until the summer. You've got to win this war by launching a successful offensive before the summer. So just do it. You know, we're going to provide you with a couple of tanks, a couple of hundred tanks. We're going to provide you with a couple of hundred infantry fighting vehicles. You've never used these kinds of machines before in combat, but we'll give you what training we can. And you've got to use all these weapons and go on to the attack now. I mean, not now, but, you know, in a couple of weeks, a couple of months. And so, in effect, it's Washington that is dictating Ukraine's timetable. And that seems to me amazing. I mean, again, one of the best things uh, I've learned, Brian, is how long it takes to use these weapons properly from your programs. I mean, you know, even Leopard 2s, and I've checked this out, by the way, I had a very interesting meeting a short while ago with somebody who worked in the British military. And he absolutely said to me exactly the same things that you've been saying, that you can't just jump into a tank and, you know, however skilled and intelligent and resourceful you are and use it. You might learn the basics. You might know how it drives and how it's gun fires. But that's not enough in order to use it in battle. But that is what Ukrainians are being pushed to do. Exactly. I don't think people appreciate that modern warfare is not about a single soldier or a single fire team or a single tank crew. It's it's not even just a group of tanks or a group of soldiers on the battlefield. The soldiers, the tanks, the, the, the air power that Ukraine doesn't even have, the artillery, absolutely everything has to work in concert. And whichever side is able to put more uh, variety of units on the battlefield and coordinate them better, that is who is eventually going to win. And Ukraine does not have the ability to do this because just as you say, there's not enough time to train them. Uh, you see these losses that Ukraine is suffering, the trained manpower that they had going into the special military operation, that has been chipped away. And when you, when, especially when you lose NCOs and officers, you can't get that back. That takes years. It takes years to develop good NCOs and good officers. That, that is just simply time Ukraine doesn't have. 
And uh, not, you know, just to point out, the U.S. tried to do the exact same thing in Syria. They were waging this proxy war against the Syrian government and its military, and they were trying to conjure up a military out of thin air. And it simply did not work for all of these reasons. It did not work. And because the Syrian Arab army and their allies were organized, they, they maintained cohesion throughout the conflict. This is why they prevailed. And I think we're seeing the exact same thing play out in Ukraine right now. What a shit show. I'm sorry for being so vulgar, but there's no other expression to, 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 to like summarize the, the situation. What a complete shit show. And, and mm. you know, the Ukrainian nation is destroyed. Okay, quite, quite frankly, yes. the, the 15 million oh. civilians who have left, and most of them women, so it's going to be a demographic catastrophe, even if the war were to end right the second. Uh, the Ukraine nation is going to be left with half of its population, a majority elderly are, or severely wounded um, uh, 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 veterans of this conflict with no women. And so the possibility of family formation here in Ukraine is going to be mm. nil. Uh, you know, as a country, even if this conflict were to end instantly somehow, and, uh, you know, they come to some agreement that, okay, the Donbass and the land bridge to Crimea is Russia forever, and, and what remains of Ukraine can, you know, re restart somehow. It's just not going to happen. Half the population is gone. Uh, uh, the the uh, family-forming uh, people are gone. This is a catastrophe for the Ukraine nation. And the, the tragedy is that it didn't need to happen. It happened because Washington wanted it to happen for their own piddly little geopolitical games that blew up in their face because now, of course, Europe's economy is toast. And uh, what do they have to show for it? They don't have anything to show for it. I mean, if you look at the balance sheet of, you know, uh, of, of results of this conflict, insofar as the West is concerned, they achieved nothing except the destruction of Ukraine. And the Russians, quite the contrary, they've opened up markets in China, in India, in Pakistan, They've mm. strengthened, you know, ties with China, with mm. India. The trade mm. with China and India has mm. increased dramatically. With Iran, Iran and Russia are much closer than they were before this conflict. You know, it, it's all blown up in their face. And this is the tragedy of it. It was, it's been a complete disaster. And how the West is going to extract itself from this mess, how the Washington establishment is going to extract this mess, itself from this mess, I, I think that personally, and I'm going to throw this to you, Alexander, I think that they're just going to basically turn away suddenly and ignore it, like the whole Ukraine thing never happened. Do you think that that is what they're going to go for? I think they might try, but I think it's going to be incredibly difficult. I mean, one of the fundamental problems is that the public mobilization in many Western countries around Ukraine has been so intense. I mean, to, to give you an example of what I mean, and I'm talking now about Britain, 40% of British people have donated money to the Ukrainian cause. Wow. Now, they haven't necessarily wow. done that. Wait, wait, let me, let me explain, because they haven't necessarily done this wanting to. What has happened is, you know, you go into your local grocery or supermarket, <clears throat> you buy... You, you go, you put your goods through the paying machines and they said, you know, will you pay one pound addition for some good cause? And the good cause is, of course, Ukraine. And people do feel under pressure to do that. Now, that was going on an awful lot last year. It's, it's eased off recently. I haven't seen it so much 
recently. But there's been an awful lot of that. And of course, Ukraine has been on in the media all the time. We've been hearing stories. People put out their flags, their Ukrainian flags. You don't see that so much anymore, but you still see a few. So just swishing off after people have been mobilized to that extent. And after, of course, we have the economic problems, which are growing. I mean, in, if I can say, I, I'm the one person amongst the four of us who lives in a West European country. You could see the problems. I mean, the food price inflation, which takes many forms, for example, jars of things, jars of pickles, for example, have suddenly, they remain the same price and they've suddenly shrunk in, in size. Shrinkflation. And quite dramatic. Quite, yeah. exactly. Quite, there's a lot of that going on. Uh, um, and talk is that industry is flat, that housing is imploding. Apparently in Germany, they're in a manufacturing recession. Companies are leaving. And everywhere, right across Europe, living standards are falling. And of course, people have been told this, you know, we've got to do this because it's important to support Ukraine. And a lot of people have believed this. I mean, you know, they hear what's been said, they hear all the things that have been said about Russia, about Putin, about the way in which this was an unprovoked war of aggression. And they've gone along with it. So <clears throat> you can't just walk away. There will be consequences. There will be bigger consequences, in my opinion, certainly in Europe, than there were in the United States after the end of the war in Vietnam, for example. I mean, it will, it will have a major impact if it all fails on the credibility of the political system and of the political class, which is already in held in a, a lot of you know, contempt, contempt by a great many people. So, Alexander, let me follow that up, uh, that, that issue up with you. So if they can walk away, will they double down yet again by encouraging the polls to become the next proxy? Because, you know, that 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 uh, Biden meeting with Zelensky, everybody paid attention to the meeting with Zelensky. But I'm really curious about Biden's meeting with Duda and potentially Kaczynski in Poland. Do you think yes. that the Americans are sort of like, you know, giving a wink and a nudge to the polls and say, hey, why don't you uh, go up to bat and, and take your slice of uh, Galicia? You know, I'm going to go out on a limb here because the first thing to say is i don't know and i think we need no, to be clear knows. about this I and mean, we're, yeah. we're we're now we're now to a great extent guessing but i i think that the time when this was being seriously thought about and considered both in warsaw and in washington might have passed and Thank i think God. the reason is i think yeah. the reason is that the polish military is itself extremely unenthusiastic to put it mildly about this idea and mm -hmm. i think they pretty much said as much bear in mind the polish military has been weakened it's had mm -hmm. to give you know 14 of its leopard 2 tanks to the ukrainians it's given many of its crab howitzers to the ukrainians an awful lot of that you know equipment has already gone and uh, thousands of people have apparently been leaving the Polish military because they don't want to be sent to fight the Russians in Ukraine. So there's been a retention problem, which has been apparently a major one, much talked about in Poland. And I've been listening to, you know, Polish top, Polish senior military people, and they're not keen on this idea. And I get to say something else. If you're looking 
further west, you're talking about Germany. The idea of Germany getting stuck and paying the bills for a Polish adventure in Ukraine. Well, I cannot imagine anything that's going to harden German opposition to the war more than something like that. Uh, and opposition to the war in Germany is now growing anyway. So, I, you know, I can't discount this. I think it's possible. But, and, you know, as things, if things deteriorate and, you know, reach a sort of great crisis, then, you know, there might be, you know, a, a resurrection of this idea. But for the moment, I, I don't think that the Poles are keen on it. And I think Washington has understood that. I, I was just going to, yeah, I was just going to say that uh, they're running, they, well, they don't really have any good options, but the, yeah. the options that they've been uh, exploring right now, they're not panning out. So all that's going to be left are even worse options, which includes trying to get Poland involved as a proxy, uh, making some kind of move regarding Moldova and Transnistria. And uh, who knows, who knows what else, uh, doing uh, getting more involved in Belarus, we saw that attempted attack, whatever that whatever that was that they tried to do in Belarus. We see Ukraine doing incursions into Russia, and these are these are worse ideas, and it all blows up in their face, even worse than what they've been doing. And that that is the the risk here. These are people that got themselves in way way in over their head, and they're not capable of winning the war, but they're also psychologically incapable of, of losing it. They refuse to, to recognize that reality. So they keep going further and further into delusion, and that is dangerous. You know, the Absolutely. Thing can, for can, me, I, can I, can I, can I, be, be, I'm sorry. Before I just, before I just, can I just say, uh, uh, Brian Gonzalo, that on that incursion into Russia, it has been a spectacular PR disaster for Ukraine. And the reason this has been so is that um, the British media, remember, they got very excited about the fact that there were some Russian soldiers and they interviewed one of them. And of course, it immediately turned out that he was a person with this extreme right-wing ideology, which we don't want to name here, but I mean... From the mid-20th century? I'm guessing. mid-20th century, exactly. Anyway, it all came tumbling out. It was in the Financial oh, Times. It was in the Telegraph. It was in all sorts of things, um, apparently on the uh, broadcast interviews. And he made things even worse by saying, oh, yeah, of course, I had absolutely Ukraine's help and permission to do it. <laughs> Couldn't have done it without them. So, I mean, it was, it was in presentational terms, in PR terms, that episode was an absolute train wreck in the West. Of course, in Russia, it's only just going to harden opinion there. Oh, yeah. They have to see it yeah. through. Anyway, Gonzalo, I mean, uh, uh, no, no, no. I, I, to, to add to your point, you know, and I, I was laughing before. I'm certainly not laughing at any of the people who were injured or killed in the Brianz mm -hmm. situation. But Brianz was just, you know, the, the epitome of, of stupid. Because, mm -hmm. it, number one, it's a civilian city with nothing military of any military significance, certainly not mm -hmm. so far as this conflict is concerned. Uh, they, they basically just shot up a bunch of civilians, which is basically a war crime. I mean, this is murder. I mean, but that's what we're talking about. Insofar as Russian public opinion, you know, especially considering some of the terrorist attacks that Russia has suffered from, from various sources over the years. Remember that um, the, the, the one with the children, uh, 
I don't even want to think about it. But, you know, this only hardens Russian opinion. Why? Who on God's earth would have said, oh, this sounds like a really good idea. Let's let's send a bunch of neo-we-know-who to, um, to the middle of Russia to shoot up civilians for no reason whatsoever and no military significance whatsoever. It's a disaster. And, 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 and the guy just spilling the beans... Because you know there there is that that um, that that thing about uh, you know uh, white supremacists you know the the wokesters in, in in the West say that white supremacy is everywhere. If you actually meet a white supremacist, he will proudly tell you that he is such. Mm-hmm. If you meet a, a neo whatever, he will proudly tell you as such. And that's what this guy did. <laughs> just happily just spilled the beans. I mean, what other effect do you think that this was going to have? It's just remarkable mm. stu- political stupidity. But it points to me as absolute desperation on the part of the Kiev regime because they simply do not know where to go because they know yeah. that they're it's over. Yeah, I mean, it really yeah. is over. Yeah. Well, whoever came up with that particular idea, <laughs> I mean, I hope he hasn't. Uh, he's still he's in place any any longer because it's PR in PR terms. Oh, it was a, it was a despicable thing to do anyway. But it was an absolute disaster. I mean, it, it but there, was yeah, but to, a to, massive to own goal. Yeah, and to further this point of desperation, you know, we're seeing videos, I've seen videos of what seems to be from uh, videos taken from the Russian side of what seems to be chemical attacks on on the front lines. And and that seems to be the case because uh, a month or so ago, I do believe, we saw this video emerging of these drones with all these canisters of apparently chemical weapons mm. and a fridge full of these canisters of chemical weapons that nobody really knows what they were, but chlorine gas or whatever other gas mm. that they would use. Yeah. And now we're seeing actual footage of uh, mm. soldiers. And it's very clear that it's not fake. I mean, the, the reaction of the soldiers right. and, and the cameraman were like, what the hell is happening to you? You know, it's not like they knew what was happening. And so I think that this just points to the desperation of the Kiev regime. And I do believe, to go back to Bakhmut, that, number one, I would not be surprised if they put together some sort of force to do a, a breakthrough, thinking that this is Baston and this is World War II, that they're going to try to reinforce Bakhmut, and those poor men are going to suffer the same fate as the previous men, or that they're going to throw one last roll of the dice in some big offensive, which will be ill-prepared and will be catastrophic. I, I do believe that we are coming to the end goal of, of this whole conflict. Yeah. And in attritional warfare, it's not the land, it's uh, treating the opposing army. I do believe that they're yeah. coming up to the end and I think that that's why all this panic is going on and this uh, mm. uh, hand-wringing and inability to come up with any kind of sensible idea that will salvage the situation. Brian, would you agree? Indeed. Absolutely. Yes, no, I, I I agree with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, what what I would say is, looking at uh, the the proxy war in Syria, a lot of the same things happened. The the U.S. backed proxies did resort to chemical weapons. They resorted to chemical weapons as a means of fighting and also as a means of uh, waging a propaganda war to try to justify a U.S. or or wider NATO intervention in. Syria and it and it didn't work and they carried out all kinds of terrorist attacks mm. all over the place. Uh, we remember in Turkey, uh, I believe it was a Russian ambassador or a Russian diplomat who was shot dead at uh, an art show or something like that. They they did all of these extremely provocative but desperate things and Syria, their allies, Russia, Iran, they ignored it. They ignored all of these provocations. They stayed laser focused on the objective and, the, and then they prevailed. And I think we're, again, we're going to see, we are seeing the same thing happening 
in Absolutely. Ukraine. Uh, Bakhmut, this offensive, people do have to be aware that the possibility of a counteroffensive exists. We don't know the exact disposition of Ukrainian and, and Russian forces in that area or mm. on the battlefield in general. We have a, a, a basic idea, but we don't know specifically. And so there could be. And if we remember, again, back to Syria, the battle for Aleppo, there actually was a breakthrough uh, toward the end of that battle. And there, there were points where large numbers of Syrian forces could have been encircled, uh, but it, it didn't happen. Uh, when when you're in the process of being encircled, you're already you're being encircled in the first place because you're you're weaker than your opponents. That that's why that's happening. So even the breakthrough, while it 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 seemed hopeful at the time, it really was futile. And I, I think again, it's going to be the same regarding Bakhmut. I remember that well. I remember that breakthrough very well, and the triumphant newspaper articles that appeared in yes. parts of the British media at the time. And well. Within a few weeks, of course, it had all run its course. Can I can I shift gears a bit? And let's always talk a bit about the geopolitics, because I come to the view that the reason that Schultz went to Washington and met Biden was obviously partly about Ukraine, but it was also about China. Because the other thing that's happened over the last few weeks, in my opinion, is that if I can put it like this, the shadow of China has now started to fall. Now, I don't know whether either of you know, but there's been a very, very strong statement from the Chinese government today, basically saying that if the United States continues in the current course that it's taking, then guardrails to protect the Chinese-US relationship will just fall away and the whole thing will tip over. I mean, it's a very, very unusually strong statement. Mm. comes after a whole cascade of position papers, including a very tough one, very true one, by the way, on US foreign policy, US hegemony as it operates today. So China, which has not been looking for a fight, and I think this is absolutely clear to me. I mean, the Chinese, however, are coming round now to the view that the US is looking for a fight with them. And I think this yeah. is partly now forming. It's now shaping Chinese policy. It's going to start shaping Chinese policy on the topic of Ukraine. And I also come around to the view, by the way, that the Chinese probably two, three weeks ago weren't thinking of sending arms to uh, Ukraine, uh, to Russia. I, I, you know, I, I've been now looking through all the various Chinese statements, and you know, they've never said that they would not do it, but they've never said they were going to do it. It just wasn't even a topic for discussion. Then the United States throws it in. It now admits it's got no evidence that the Chinese are, in fact, planning to send weapons to China. It was part of its the sort of anti-China campaign the US is running. But I mean, yeah, from a Chinese I, I, point of view, you could almost yeah. see, you know, if you're going to be criticized and sanctioned. Yeah for doing something which you are not in fact doing, well, why not do in it. that case just go ahead and do it? I mean, this seems to me the kind of logic. I've been thinking a great deal about the China situation. I did an entire yeah. video on the uh, yeah. US hegemony and its perils paper that the Chinese yeah. foreign ministry released. Uh, I released it a couple of days after that paper came out because I read it and I realized what it was. 
it is the um, resignation of the Chinese leadership that they are going to go to war with the United States, rather. And uh, I do not believe that you can read that position paper as anything else other than a laundry list of political sins that the United States has committed. And the fact, it seems to me to be a subtle way of declaring war, of saying, look, these are the reasons that we're eventually going to have a conflict with the United States. Uh, these act, actions that the United States have done, has done. And Alex, I, I'd ask you if, if you wouldn't mind to share the link to that uh, position paper, which I think is ex extraordinarily significant. Just as uh, Brian, you know, he's always talking about um, the Rand Corporation paper of how to dismember uh, Russia. Well, for me, this, this paper, U.S. Hegemony and Its Perils, I think is a, a crucial document because I, I think it lays out the prosecution's case against the United States. And I think it signals that the Chinese Communist Party, as a party, has made up its mind, yeah, we're going to have to go to war with the United States. We don't want to, but they are clearly coming for us, so we're going to get prepared for it. And my thinking at this time is that, uh, and also, by the way, in the United States, there's a lot more anti-China sentiment So I, uh, that's coming out in the mainstream news organizations, which are basically propaganda outlets for the Biden regime. So I think that we're going to see, you know, continue to talk about how evil China is and the beginnings of the famous sanctions mm -hmm. escalator that Alexander coined, coined that particular phrase. And I think it's going to get a lot worse in 2024 and so far sanctions. Mm -hmm. And they're going to have the same effect that the sanctions against Russia mm -hmm. had on Europe. But the sanctions against China are going to blow the American economy out of the water. And mm -hmm. I think that as the economic situation deteriorates in 2024, because of the sanctions mm -hmm. against China, then there will be this this panic response of egging on a war, especially as the Biden regime and the Democratic Party generally feels that their position politically in the United States is slipping. There will be more of a banging the drum for war with China, which I personally expect in 2025. And I think that it is going to happen. And I think that these position papers that the Chinese foreign ministry has released just underlines the fact that they themselves have realized, yeah, we're going in that direction and there's nothing to stop it because in the United States, there is not the political leadership that would halt this insane escalation of, of aggressiveness towards the major powers. Uh, they, they've done this with Russia and it's failed. And so they're going to double down and go after China and it's going to be even worse. I mean, that's my position at this time. I don't know if you gentlemen would agree with this. I, I, yes, I do. I, I agree with both of you. Uh, the United States has made it abundantly clear they're going to war with China. They are going to contain China. There's, you know, the, the way things are going right now, unless the U.S. does commit to some sort of armed conflict with China and somehow win, inevitably China is going to surpass the United States. This policy of containing China is not is not working, will not work. Uh, so the only way in their minds that they can make it work is by uh, precipitating some sort of conflict. Uh, they have U.S. troops in Taiwan, despite officially recognizing Taiwan as part of China, uh, the one China policy. And at the same time, they have troops there. They're talking about expanding the number of troops there. They say that this is for training Taiwanese forces uh, on the island. But in reality, they've written policy papers about this. This is called the tripwire force. This is in the realization that if China does decide to resolve the Taiwan question by force. They will succeed unless the United States not only intervenes 
directly, but also immediately. So they want this tripwire force there so that they have the ability to immediately react militarily. But even then, uh, these, these policy think tanks that are drumming these ideas up in the first place are skeptical uh, that it will turn out uh, in what you would consider a, an actual victory, because they're talking about all kinds of sh US ships, and including multiple carriers sunk, thousands, if not tens of thousands of soldiers, sailors, and airmen dead. Uh, on the U.S. side, uh, so how how do you figure that as a as a victory? And of course, Taiwan is scoured of all industry, infrastructure, and and human life, and yet they they think that somehow they're going to pull a victory off here. But it's again, it's exactly like with Ukraine. It is a proxy war. They're mm. waging it at Taiwan's expense. Uh, it has mm. nothing to do with protect protecting Taiwan. Mm. I, I think the major, the immediate thing that they're going to push for and i think this is what all that discussion about chinese weapons supplies to russia was about i think it was basically a way of winning over the europeans to the idea of sanctions against china because i think if you see if you if you follow europeans you follow the way the europeans have been discussing the situation it's clear to me that most of them they're not actually terribly i'm terribly interested in a conflict with China. China is far away. It's not a challenger to the United States, the United, sorry, to, to, to Europe. Europe is not a superpower, a hegemonic power, the way that the United States is. It's not in any kind of, Europe isn't in any kind of rivalry with China. And of course, we are economically dependent upon the Chinese anyway. So why would the Europeans join in a sanctions war with China. They wouldn't, except, of course, that the Europeans, the European leaders, are now very invested in this war in Ukraine. So you tell them, look, you've got to agree to sanctions against China because the Chinese are working towards supplying arms to the Russians. You put the whole topic of sanctions that way against China on the table in a way that European leaders can't really push back too hard on because they're so committed to Ukraine that they just can't walk away given this specter of Chinese weapons to Russia having now been introduced. Does that all make sense to you? Do you understand the point I'm trying to make? That this is why I think this whole story about Chinese weapons supplies to Russia was floated in the first place. Mm -hmm. Yeah. By the way, Alexander, you have a lot of contacts in, in Germany. And I wanted to ask you, because I saw recently an interview with a, a, a leader, I don't know her name, but she was a leader in Dailinke. And, um, and they were, she was talking about Nord Stream and she wanted investigations into Nord yes. Stream. Yes. It seems yes. that the Nord Stream story is starting to percolate in Germany. Is that, is that the case? Right. Well, first of all, the thing to say is it's never been completely suppressed as it has been in Britain and has largely been in the United States. In Germany, people do talk about it and they talk about it an awful lot more than they do in Britain, the US, because obviously, you know, Germany was directly affected. So it, it's, it's always been there. Now, I think the interview that you're referring to is with a leader of the Linke, not Sarah Wagenknecht, who's the person everybody knows about, but you know, another one. And I, I don't pretend I know 
all the yeah. politicians in Germany, not by any stretch. But I think the point she was making is investigators, the people who are trying to carry out these investigations about what's happened to Nord Stream, are not reporting on what they're finding to the Bundestag, to the German parliament. Pe people aren't being kept out of information. The information has been is not circulating within the political circles in Germany as it should be over a matter of this importance. And she said, this is completely unacceptable. And I know more and more people in Germany are thinking this. And of course, if we come back to, 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 to Germany, I mean, Germany is going through a very difficult economic time. I mean, the cutting off, the loss of cheap gas from Russia has been a blow. The loss of the Russian market, not a huge market for Germany, but still a significant one. And one which was very built in to German plan, uh, companies' plans for the future. Well, that's also been a blow. But of course, if you are seriously going to talk about sanctions against China, <laughs> which is Germany's, I think it's Germany's biggest export market. I mean, for the Germans, I mean, that is a catastrophe. So I think that what reason Schultz went to Washington is all this talk from Washington about, you know, sanctions against China. He's under pressure from the German business community. He's rushed off to Washington and he's had a chat with Biden. And he basically says, for heaven's sake, let's not go down this road. And we, Germany is not really ready for it. You can see this from the readout because the readout, it says, you know, it talks about Ukraine at the beginning and then at the very end, you know, other glo other topics <laughs> of global importance. Tasmania. Also Tasmania, discussed. that's what they were talking also about. Discussed. I mean, that kind <laughs> that 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 sort of thing. So I, I think that this talk about the Chinese um, weapons supplies, I think what it's, I mean, it might have consolidated some people in Europe behind the US, but I think it's also spooked some others. And I think it might have spooked Schultz, and I think that might be the reason that he went to Washington. I mean, it's very interesting to, to list to read also Biden's um, introductory words to Schultz, which are the only parts of the conversation that we know, which were clearly pre-prepared. And Schultz is talked about as this loyal and steadfast leader who's you know courageously taken all these decisions. Well, that's a very double-edged compliment if you think about it, because what makes Schultz loyal and steadfast from an American point of view is that he's agreed to a sanctions war against Russia, which you could argue was contrary to German interest. So that's, that's, uh, and, so what and, Biden Schultz, is saying, if you're, yeah. if you're going to remain and, steadfast, then you've got to continue on this path, irrespective and, of whatever private doubts you might have. Yeah. And the fact that Schultz has not said a peep about Nord Stream Basically, now, uh, but de facto, uh, Olaf Scholz owns the Nord Stream terrorist attack. So, uh, you know, so, so politically, he, he's on the boat with the Americans and he can't get off this boat. Further, I would, I would point the obvious, you know, German um, and broadly Western European uh, uh, prosperity 
has been held up by a tripod of three factors. Number one, the American military umbrella that allows them to devote far less of their GDP to the military than they ordinarily would have had to. Number two, the Russian energy, cheap Russian energy. And number three, mm. cheap Chinese consumer goods and, and higher end electronics. And if they yeah. knock out, I mean, they've knocked out the second leg. If they knock out the third, where is Europe going to be? They'll be well, priced indeed. out of any markets and, and they, their, their industry will just collapse. I think that this is really the, the American drive to maintain its uh, hegemony is just going to crush the Europeans. I, I think that that's well, the ultimate result of all this. Well, just to get a sense of how delusional this whole thing has become, <laughs> let, 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 let me try your patience, gentlemen, by reading to you yeah. an extract from an article in the Financial Times, you know, supposedly a business newspaper, by Gideon Rackman. Now, Gideon Rackman is a person who's fully signed on to the American at the Anglo-American foreign policy line, if I can put it like that. And he now talks mm -hmm. about China and he talks about um, sanctions against China. This is in the Financial Times. And it says the Chinese know that Western corporations and consumers are too dependent on them to attempt a complete economic decoupling. But if trade with the West dropped by even 30%, the results would be felt in higher unemployment in China, which would worry a government that is acutely sensitive to displays of popular unrest. I mean, it's delusional. If you seek trade with China by 30% at a time when we are already struggling with an inflation crisis, not just in Europe, but, you know, across the collective West with inflation, inflation rising, where Jerome Powell has just today said that he might have to start raising interest rates even oh, more yeah. aggressively than he had done. I mean, you're going to reduce trade with China by 30%? First of all, I mean... Oh, it's just, it's just, just a little, it's just a little 30%. Uh, Alexander, little 30%. I insist. Yeah. You're, you're talking about the big 30%, but I'm, they're talking about a little 30% that you'll hardly mm. feel it. It'll be a mosquito bite. They're insane. I mean, this is crazy. And the funny thing is that they say that this will affect the Chinese leadership insofar as popular discontent in China. The Chinese people, they're not stupid. They're going to realize that this drop insofar as their trade is concerned is not because of the Chinese leadership. It's because of the sanctions. Sanctions have never worked because the people there realize that it's not their government's fault. It's because of the United States imposing these sanctions over whatever excuse that they have of the day. And that is what's going to hurt them. So they're not going to blame the, the Chinese Communist Party. They're going to blame the West, rightfully so. This is just delusional. I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry. For yeah, I, I just want to point out that uh, the, the U.S. is going to force Europe to do this. It is going to completely destroy whatever is left of, of Germany's economy, uh, socioeconomic stability. And this is a lot like someone with cancer doing chemotherapy. They're poisoning their body, hoping that the, the, the cancer dies before their whole body dies. That is the concept here that the U.S. is uh, resorting to in this. Uh, and just as Gonzalo said, this is all just, just about clinging to American primacy over the entire globe, which yeah. is... It's ego-driven. It, the very premise is rooted in fantasy. It, it makes no sense. And everything they build up on top of it departs further and further away from reality. And it, it is extremely dangerous 
China, China can see that the U.S. Is, is not going to be rational, reasonable, and they're preparing for this, just like Russia did years and years before this current conflict began. They're putting all the pieces uh, into place. And the Chinese population, they're acutely aware of what the U.S. and Europe had done to them during what they call the century of humiliation. That is still uh, uh, something in their oh, collective probably. conscious. And... Uh, so when when the U.S. starts making moves to try to deliberately hurt China, the population is going to understand exactly what this is. This is uh, and what is at stake if they cannot prevail over what the U.S. attempts to try to do. So I think, again, the U.S. is rushing. They, the window of opportunity probably has already closed. They don't think that it has. They keep talking about 2025. China starting a war over Taiwan by 2025. No, it is the U.S. desperate for a war with China before 2025, because after that, China is going to eclipse the United States. And then at that point, there is nothing the U.S. can do militarily or economically to coerce China any further. This idea that they're going to contain China, I, I just don't see it happening. It's, hey, Brian, but but they will destroy everything trying. Yeah, Brian, yeah. can I ask you the following question? You know, I, I've always thought to myself that the, the Trump victory in 2016 essentially postponed by four years this entire plan. And, you know, the funny thing is that this plan, if, if they had carried it out starting in 2016, you know, we'd be like in basically 2018 having this uh, proxy conflict with Russia. And uh, Russia would have been less prepared economically, financially, and perhaps militarily even to, to withstand it. Do, do you agree with me that maybe it's the fact that Trump won that threw the kibosh into this whole plan that these people have obviously been working on for years, if not decades, quite frankly. Do you see my point? Actually, despite Trump, uh, his rhetoric being opposed to all of this, he populated his cabinet with exactly the people who sought to carry this out. And when they were in, in these positions, they did uh, move it forward during his administration. It just wasn't something he was involved in. At times, he was opposed to it. But just as everyone says, it is the deep state. It has a life of its own. And uh, I would say the president, any president, not just uh, Trump, they really have no say in the matter. If you know, uh, they will say, "Do this, do that," and but these people actually then have to do it. And if they don't, and the media is backing the deep state over whoever was elected president, then that's what's going to happen because this is about money and power. It's not about some title, uh, the result of election. That is uh, relatively no. meaningless. Yeah. No, but, uh, but do you think that uh, at least Trump tripped them up? A little bit in their plans and force them to postpone it a bit, or do you think that they were planning on you know 2022, 2023 having this uh, conflict with Russia and then moving on to China on this timetable? I'm, I'm it's really academic, and I'm just kind of curious about it. I I think the reason why is because the U.S. is not nearly as powerful yeah. as they think. That things are going slowly because they are not as powerful as they they wish they were. These are not, these things are not working out the way they want, just mm -hmm. like their proxy war in Ukraine, because look at Russia, look at how they depict Russia and look at what Russia is in reality. And the same goes for China, actually many times over the misconceptions <laughs> that I hear from these think tank analysts when they're on their YouTube channel that they know regular people aren't watching and they're talking, they're still talking entirely delusional. They, they have a, they have a, they're, disconnected from reality, the reality in China, 
what it i mean have they ever gone there and seen it in person do they oh. interact with the the nations along its periphery that trade and do business with china apparently not because their their vision of the world is opposite of reality and it and it shows because they they pick these policies that are impossible to implement successfully mm. i think that that is what's mm. holding them back more than anything else i think gonzalo um yeah. just, just to go on your point i think they got delayed in syria I think that really hurt them. They wanted the regime change in Syria and they couldn't get it. I think Trump did delay them, but you could also make the argument that Russia may not have been ready. Like if Hillary won, maybe Russia may not have been ready for the economic shock and all. But then you can make the argument that Germany and the EU, they would also not be ready for for those types of, of, of cutoffs with Russia. So who knows? But I think Syria played a big a big part in in knocking the neocons off course. They couldn't overthrow Assad. I think Belarus played a big part. And a lot of people don't talk about that. And the reason I bring that up is because just yesterday, uh, Lukashenko, the courts in Belarus, they uh, sentenced uh, Tikhanovskaya, the opposition leader who's in exile in Poland. They sentenced her to 15 years in uh, prison for trying to overthrow the government. But I think the plan... Once they got all their pieces in place, they got Biden there and they felt like they could go go ahead with their plan to to take out uh, the Putin regime to overthrow them. I think their plan was Belarus. Let's get Belarus first and let's knock it out. We have the elections. We feel that Lukashenko is weak. He's vulnerable. Let's take him out. Once we get Belarus, maybe maybe then we swing to Kazakhstan. I don't know if Kazakhstan was an audible. I don't know if when they lost Belarus, they said, "Okay, let's. Maybe we could do something in Kazakhstan or if they panic, I don't know. But I think the Belarus, um, the fact that they couldn't get a coup in Belarus that they failed, I think that was uh, that was big because it would be a much different uh, conflict if the EU had Belarus and Russia was pretty much just all alone yeah. over there. I, I don't know. That's just my take on it. I, I think you're I, right. I bring that up because I, of I the... I think you're yeah. very right. I, I think, I think I know yeah, Syria. Yeah. Syria tripped them up, but I think that you're right. The biggest stumbling block was probably Belarus. And I agree with you. The Kazakhstan thing was an audible, like a, a last minute improvised thing because of the fact that the Russians with the Kazakhstan government were able to smother it so quickly in January of 22 mm-hmm. kind of like proves that point. They weren't really prepared for Kazakhstan. And I remember the Belarus thing because I knew some uh, Belarusians uh, when I was living in Amsterdam at the time. And they were all talking about it. It was all they were saying. And they were all convinced that uh, Lukashenko would be overthrown in, in that color revolution. And the fact that he held on, I think, really threw a, a spanner in the works. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think you're right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I agree also, uh, Alex, the Syria and Belarus, then also Kazakhstan, then here in Southeast Asia, the military in Myanmar ousted the, the client regime the U.S. set up there. And there's there's many setbacks that 10, 20 years ago would never have happened. And this is because many people are mobilizing against this. And just think of how Russia squashed that in Kazakhstan. Uh, that's something that we, we didn't normally see, uh, say, 10, 20 years ago. But China, Russia are openly talking about the, the concept of color revolution and openly and specifically fighting back against it with their partners. I, I think that is a huge advance uh, from what, what we had been seeing. And I think that is tripping up the U.S. and their, these plans of theirs uh, rearranging the, the game board in their favor.
Yeah, now they're doing it in Hungary of all places. You saw Samantha Powers, uh, uh, you know, tweeting out video of her with USA, and they're bringing you know openness and transparency and democracy to Hungary as if it's like uh, you know, like like I don't know North Korea or something. And these guys don't know when to quit. I mean, what the hell is the matter with these people? Well, there's heavy pressure, as Alex and I, Alex brought up in a video we did. There's been heavy pressure now on both Hungary and Serbia, the two dissident mm -hmm. European nations that that are left. Alex, I mean, I, I we, we've had a discussion. Does any does anybody else want to, uh, Brian? Gonzalo, do you want to add anything further? Otherwise, perhaps we could go over to Alex and ask, you know, Alex makes more contributions, maybe, or perhaps well, we can look at some questions. I mean, what do well, it's, it's about now? everyone's time. Do you guys have time, time. For, for a few sure. questions? I'm, 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 I'm free, completely free. Okay. Gonzalo, yeah. how are you on time? I'm minutes? fine so long as no missile hits me. Okay, let's do it. That's is, my only is 30 minutes okay? <laughs> To go through. Let's sure, do 30 minutes. Yeah, it's sure. about 30 okay. minutes. Yeah. No. Okay. Okay. Great. Let me just give me one second to pull. Well, up. thank you. It says you're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's the first question. Let's see. From Atna Sens, Gonzalo, a guesstimate for Kharkov falling under Russian control. My bet is before June, is before the end of June. Will Z men have the decency to declare it an open city? Uh, uh, I, I don't know, quite frankly. Uh, do keep in mind, Kharkov is a very spread out city. Okay, so in, in terms of militarily capturing it, uh, it would be a nightmare. Okay, it's huge. It's the second largest city of Ukraine, and it's spread out. Okay, so um, how that would play out, I personally don't think that there's going to be any combat in Kharkov. Kharkov is an ethnically Russian city. There are a lot of people back in Kharkov, and they are Russian. Uh, so I don't think that the, uh, the Kiev regime would make a stand here. Um, I, I think, frankly, um, the city of Kharkov is so close to the Russian border, on the one hand, so uh, intimately tied to Russia in terms of the people who are here now. Um, I, I don't see uh, you know, open warfare, city warfare, urban warfare happening here at all. I think if... if um, my thinking at this point, and I'd ask you, gentlemen, if you agree, is that the, the conflict is going to remain around Donbass until some sort of tipping point, breaking point of morale and, and just the, simply a lack of manpower. And then the uh, Kiev regime forces are simply going to collapse at some point. I think that that is in the offing. And I do believe that this, this panicking reaction, these, this random thrashing around by the Kiev regime, Bryansk and chemical weapons and what happened what we've been talking about I, th I think it's desperation because they know that the clock is ticking and they're they're coming to the end and so if there is a sudden collapse um, you know the, the Russians would sweep in because everybody seems to forget that the Russians have surrounded Ukraine on, on the Belarusian border on the eastern border of Ukraine and in the south with altogether something like 600 700,000 troops my personal take has always been that that's an occupying force and they're going to roll that force in once the Kiev regime has just given up the ghost and perhaps fled to the West. That's my thinking. And furthermore, and to finish the point, I, do, I, I don't know when this war will end. I'd be incredibly surprised if by the end of December we're still having conversations like this. I think that it will be over by the end of the year. When precisely? It's, it's like the famous tipping point. You never know when it happens. Retrospectively, you might be able to say, oh yeah, that's of course when it was gonna happen. But 
before the moment happens, you can't really predict it. That's my thinking at this time. All right. Uh, Brian, I'm on your Patreon as well as here on the Duran. Prigozhin is worried he won't receive regular Russian army support and will be pushed back from Artemovsk. Are you worried? He has been continuously saying things like this, uh, and yet uh, Bakhmut continues to be encircled. So I, I I don't know. I don't know what the story is. I talk, I talk to many people who are relatively well-informed about what's going on in Russia, and they say that this is a, a you know, publicity. This is about publicity rather than reality. I think, um, Alexander, you have made similar comments about this, yeah. the, the drama over the ammunition. He got a lot of attention doing that. It seems like he's just doing that again. Uh, right, 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 just, right in a row. Absolutely. I just want to add one further point about Prigozhin, which is, I think, not one, one that many people don't understand, which is that he is a complete civilian. He has never served in the armed forces. He's never trained as an officer. He has no command experience. He, he is not the operational commander of the Wagner fighters. Now, I'm no doubt he's very connected with them. And, you know, he knows pretty much everything that's going on. But I'm sure that the military change of com chain of command goes, goes through him, but also around him as well. And I'm sure that lots of debates go on and all kinds of things happen. And it's notable that the actual commanders in the Wagner group, they're remaining, they're remaining absolutely quiet about this. This is Prigozhin himself. I suspect, I guess blunt about this, I think he's intent on carving out a political role when the war is over. He sees himself as the hero of Bakhmut, the man who took Bakhmut. He wants he's he's looking already for the per, you know that that role where he can say well it's all me and I did it despite all these cowards and <laughs> traitors and slackers at the Ministry yeah. of Defense I'm the man you should you should go for I mean that that's yeah, he wants the credit he, he wants, wants the credit. credit and he wants and and he also and you know and here he's got a good point he also wants the Wagner fighters to get credit too yeah I mean there was a meeting at the defense ministry chaired by Shoigu and Shoigu was talking about all these places that have been captured and several of them I noticed places which the Wagner forces have captured and Shoigu talks about the Russian armed forces so I mean you know that that must annoy Prigozhin <laughs> and it's unsurprising that it does and it you know causes all of these flare-ups but I I cannot imagine that the Russians I can imagine. But I think it's most unlikely that the Russians would allow the whole situation in Bakhmut to unravel because of a quarrel between Prigozhin and you know Never other people in the, in the in 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 the Russian military leadership. Yeah. Oh, here's a little data point that might be interesting. Uh, apparently, Prigozhin is extraordinarily protective of his Wagner guys, and so so far as supplying them with the gear equipment and being really on top of that because he doesn't want his people to go out unprepared and uh, as from what i understand they're the best the best equipped uh, outfit of of all of the russian forces arrayed in this conflict and so Absolutely. you know there, there's a credit issue and also a protectiveness issue but i and, agree with you completely it will mean absolutely nothing insofar as the the continuation and the success of the russian armed forces in the conflict Absolutely. And they must also quickly add, there must be some resentment as well. 
I mean, you know, other oh, wow. other unions must be saying, well, you know, why are Wagner getting everything and not us? <laughs> so, I mean, you know, it, it cuts both ways. But I don't think, as I said, this is ultimately a matter of any great significance. Yeah. Uh, John and Angry Warhawk have the same question. So let me just throw it at you guys. Um, assuming Russia wins the current battle, where is the next target of major significance? And Angry Warhawk says, once Bakhmut falls, will the dam break and will we see the Russian tidal wave roll across the entire Ukraine? Basically, what happens after Bakhmut, I think, is, is mm. a good way to... Only the Russians know. And only the Kiev regime knows. I mean, that's my thinking yeah. at this time. Brian, do you, do you think that there's an obvious objective that the Russians are going to go for next? I, th I think they're just going to continue doing what they've been doing all along this incremental push all along the line of contact. They see places like uh, Bakhmut and before that, uh, several Donetsk and Lysychansk. And uh, before that, Mar Mariupol, these were opportunities. Th this is where it made the most sense at the time. And then after Bakhmut, that, that's where they're going to go, the place that makes the most sense at that time. They're not going to pick some place that is irrational and then fight their way toward it. Because again, the whole point is to diminish Ukraine's military as much as possible. And they, they do that by picking their, their targets, their objectives very carefully. And they pick them based uh, I, on the number of troops there. So if, they're, if the Kiev regime is actually planning on doing some sort of the Zaporozhye offensive, one would reasonably expect them to position their troops there. Would I be right? Yeah, I think they do have uh, troops ready there for a major offensive. Uh, absolutely. Can I just give two quotes uh, from Russian officials today? One is from Shoigu, who is the defense minister. He had a meeting at the uh, defense ministry and he said over the course of it, this is an, uh, talking about Bakhmut, the liberation of Bakhmut is currently underway. This city is an important center of, of defense of Ukrainian troops in Donbass. Taking it under control will allow further offensive actions deep into the defense of the armed forces of Ukraine. So I think that essentially confirms what you're saying, Brian, because he's talking about offensive actions deep into the defense of the armed forces of Ukraine. He's not talking about, it seems to me here, a, a you know, big area offensive. You say we will take the advantage of capturing this important center of Ukraine's defenses, and we will continue afterwards to take Ukraine's defenses in Donbass apart. So that's what um, that's what uh, Shoigu has said, and uh, a man called Belitsky, who is the Russian-appointed governor of Zaporozhye region, the part of Zaporozhye region that the Russians control, he's also been quoted on Russian television today as saying that Russian forces in Zaporozhye have been heavily reinforced and that the forces there are up to are up to strength and in a much better state than they were some months ago. So I think that answers your question, Gonzalo, about Zaporozhye. Yeah. And by the way, uh, somebody in chat has said, you know, what about Odessa and Transnistria? Transnistria, I yeah, yeah. I personally don't think that the Russians are going to go for it. Brian, uh, I, I think it was Brian who did a, a commentary on Transnistria and the ammo depot that's there, that it's basically a poison pill. I, I, I do believe you were the one who said that, that, that it was basically... Or, or, or somebody I read, I, I forgot, frankly, because there's just so much information flowing around. 
But you, you know, the, for the Kiev regime to go after Transnistria, I don't think they have the manpower. And even if they did, uh, the, the Russian garrison there would just blow up that ammo depot and it would be a pointless exercise insofar as uh, the Kiev regime is concerned. I think that that Transnistria thing is just not going to happen. And insofar as an amphibious assault on Odessa, I doubt, seriously doubt no. that that would ever happen. Uh, because <laughs> why blow that manpower to do something that uh, militarily expensive when you can just keep on grinding away as you've been doing for the past year, and uh, eventually it'll fall of its own accord. Uh, Brian, well, do you agree? Yeah, it goes back to what you said, Gonzalo, about uh, when when Ukraine's military fighting capacity collapses entirely, you don't need to go and uh, assault Odessa because you, like you said, you have these forces. They they will become an occupation force. They're not going to be an assault force. Yeah. Uh, so I think it, if if they do take Odessa, that will be the way they do it. I'm at, uh, them fighting their way to Odessa, I think that would be, um, that is a very, uh, yeah. Yeah, and I think that insofar as the Russians are concerned, I probably they, the, the Russians have probably made the cold-hearted calculation that they're not going to bother with it because it would just be, you know, logistically a nightmare. The losses would be ca not catastrophic, but they would be severe, way above the worth of that sliver of land. And if they're, what they're doing is working, don't mess with a good thing when you're winning, you know? I mean, th that's my thinking. Yeah. Uh, Mark Hewitt, would you compare Bakhmut to Dien Ben Phu or Verdun or both? I'll answer that. This is, this is this is history. Just just to explain to people, Verdun, the Battle of Verdun, one of the key battles of the First World War. It was the Germans set out to fight attrition war against the French. They led. They carried out an offensive against Verdun, which was a heavily fortified city under French control near the French uh, front lines. The French were obliged to defend it. And the attrition was terrible. And by the way, the French commander was uh, Marshal, the, the man who eventually became Marshal Pétain, who obviously headed the pro-German government in the Second World War. But we won't go there. I think that the German strategy is analogous to that of the Russians today. But there's a fundamental difference, which is that in 1916, the German and Allied forces in um, Europe were relative in the Western Front were relatively matched so arguably the Germans also suffered severe attrition at Verdun and it wasn't just the French Verdun by the way didn't fall now Yen Bien Phu is a completely different battle that took place in 1953 and it was in Vietnam North Vietnam the whole of Vietnam had been a French colony before the Second World War, in the part of the French colony of Indochina. After the Second World War, there was an insurrection there by the Vietnamese, led by a man who the Americans know very well, Ho Chi Minh, who's a communist, leader of the Communist Party of, North, uh, of Vietnam. And he led also the independence movement against the French. And what happened over the course of that war was that a French force about the same size as the one in the Ukrainian force in Bakhmut now, got surrounded by the Vietnamese in a place called Dien Bien Phu, quite a small place. And the um, Vietnamese 
positioned artillery that they got supplied to them by the Chinese and the Russians, and they shelled the French forces. And the battle went on for about seven months, and it ended in a Vietnamese victory. And so you can see some of the military parallels between these two battles. Can I read you guys a title that just came in from the New York Times? Pro-Ukrainian uh -oh. uh -oh. group. Pro-Ukrainian yeah. group behind Nord Stream explosions. New York Times. Pro-Ukrainian group between behind Nord Stream. Uh, You've got to be you, kidding. You've got to be kidding. You came in on Telegram oh, I, I, and seen the New York Times cover right now. The U.S. government. Intelligence pro-Ukrainian group. Pro-Ukrainian group sabotage pipe, pipelines. U.S. officials say. That is yeah. just laughable. It's it's it's, it's 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 literally true, Gonzalo. I the, mean, we know that. This well, is evidence. okay, yes, technically, <laughs> you're right. You're right. You're right. Uh, this, it this is, is a by, It is the U.S. military. Oh, yeah, this is God. evidenced I'm... by new intelligence data that U.S. officials have read. However, there is no evidence that Ukrainian President Zelensky or his top aides were involved in the operation. I, I cannot <laughs> believe that they are because it was the Pentagon. Lie. I cannot we, we have to I'm, double I'm and triple check the this, but I'm, I'm, no, I'm, I'm seeing the screenshot Hang right on. now. It's, it's, it's coming up. I'm looking at the screen. I'm looking at the New York Times right now. Yeah, okay. I'm looking at it now too because I've got to see this. My my internet is 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 snail's pace. Okay, uh, okay. Let me, uh, okay, intelligence suggests pro-Ukrainian group sabotage pipelines. U.S. officials say. New intelligence reporting um, amounts to the first significant known lead about who was responsible for the attack on the Nord Stream pipelines that carried natural gas from Russia to Europe. First paragraph. New intelligence reviewed by U.S. officials suggests that a pro-Ukrainian group carried out the attack on the Nord Stream pipelines last year, a step towards determining responsibility for an act of sabotage that has confounded investigators on both sides of the Atlantic for months. U.S. officials said they that they had no evidence President Volodymyr Zelensky of Ukraine or his top lieutenants were involved in the operation. The brazen attack on the natural pipeline. Okay, I'm not going to read anymore because, because how can you be the the chutzpah? Chutzpah. I'm sorry. I'm I I, I cannot. I, I'm sorry. I'm I'm flabbergasted. Please forgive me. Please forgive me for my well, outburst because well, this is we'll so take... insane. We'll, we'll dig into this story. Danitsa uh, De, De, wants to know, how exactly do Ukrainians who fled Europe imagine things? In one case, Europe goes to war with Russia on the territory of Ukraine, destroys it. In the other, it expands throughout Europe. Then how far will they flee? To Argentina? Question. I'm, I'm sorry, I, I think... I'm still recovering my shock. So, Brian, <laughs> take it away. Yeah, I think, I think people that fled Ukraine, I think uh, most of them are just ordinary people that just want to get yeah. away from the conflict. Yeah. Uh, it's very, it, it, you could see what, what is going on there. And that's just something that I don't think any normal person would want to be, you know, affected by if they had the opportunity to get out. So they did. And I, I don't know if they're really thinking about, I mean, obviously they're thinking about their own personal future, but I mean, everybody is waiting to see what happens in Ukraine, but you see the state of its infrastructure, the economy. Uh, I think even I, I, ordinary I mean, people can look at that and say, nah, I can, I can speak of this with, with some authority because I'm in touch with a lot of uh, diaspora Ukrainians. And, uh, you know, this conflict has gone on for over a year. And, and uh, a big chunk of them left almost immediately. 
all right? Uh, I mean, the first uh, 30 days, 60 days on the outside. Now, these people have gone to Poland. They've gone a lot to uh, Sweden, um, uh, Denmark, Germany, Switzerland. And, uh, and another big chunk has gone, have gone to Russia. That's something that people don't report. Um, UN estimates are that something like 14 million Ukrainians fled the country. And something like 3 uh, million of those went to Russia because they have family ties there. And the other 11 million went to Europe. And they're spread mm. around uh, the, the European continent. They have no intention of coming back because these people fled early in the conflict out of panic. And um, in the year since, they've settled into jobs, into apartments, into relationships. And so why would they go back? And especially considering the fact that even if the war were to end now, Ukraine is a broken country. So they're not going to have any kind of economic opportunities to advance with their lives. Whereas in Europe, regardless of what the discussion we've been having about the disaster of the European economy, at, at least it still has a semblance of order and infrastructure that is more or less working in Europe, whereas that is not the case in Ukraine. So that diaspora is never going to return. Uh, or if it were to return, I would suggest less than 20% of those people. Because I, I think that's something that has to be understood is that it, it, it's not that they've just gotten a job, but they've also started to form uh, friendships, um, romantic relationships of various sorts. They're getting established elsewhere. And so, especially the women, um, I hate to bring this, this issue up, but the Zelensky regime pre prevents and has prevented since the, uh, the outset of this conflict, uh, military age men, young men, from leaving the country. And so the ones who filtered out were predominantly women. Certainly some of the people who were richer, who were able to bribe the border guards, were able to filter through. But for the most part, they are older people and they are women, professional women. And so they're not going to return to Ukraine because they're settled in the West. And, and that's why Ukraine as a nation is broken already, irretrievably so. A question to Brian, since we can all trust the collective West leadership to tell the truth, when will F-16s be flying into the Ukraine with NATO pilots in uniform? Ghost of Kiev! Talk about the ghost of Kiev! Mm -hmm. Well, well Alex, Alex, as you said in a recent video, uh, if F-16s do appear in the skies over Ukraine, it's because NATO pilots are posing as Ukrainian pilots and operating them. The problem is, Ukraine had an air force when the special military operation began. Russia destroyed it on the ground with their cruise missiles. They destroyed it in the air with their anti-air uh, defense systems. They have uh, their own military aviation that uh, did and are still shooting down whatever NATO is able to scrape together and send to Ukraine in terms of both helicopters and warplanes and also drones. And so uh, F-16 operating in Ukraine, all that's, all that's going to be is more more for Russia to shoot down. Uh, where are they going to operate out of? Where are they going to operate where they're not going to be immediately shot down? I mean, th these are all really important questions. And I think this is the reason why they've been discussing it. They've been discussing it along with all these other very unrealistic propositions because they want to create the illusion of this massive tidal wave of support they're going to give and, con and continuously give Ukraine. But when you actually analyze it, it's it's a it's a it's a smoke there's no substance to it yeah 
Uh, Filipina Traveler TV says, New Atlas, do you think that we will see a bombing campaign campaign at some at some point? Russian Air Force have only and mostly used Su-25 helicopters and missile strikes. Uh, there actually are reports that Russia is using military aviation around Adyevka, uh, outside Donetsk city. Uh, they also have a glide bomb munition that I've I've seen evidence that they've they've begun using. So this is a kind of a standoff weapon. They actually they have been using uh, standoff weapons for for many attacks. These a lot of these cruise missiles are being fired by Russian warplanes. Uh, when they start bombing more aggressively and over targets like they had been in in Syria, that all comes down to degrading Ukraine's air defense system, which is which is nearing completion. But when exactly that happens and, and Russia feels confident, I, I believe it will happen, but I just don't know when. Okay. I have a, a, a quick comment uh, because as, as I've been listening to Brian speak, I, I also scanned through the article and I want to read a, a pertinent uh, couple of paragraphs, if you don't mind. I wanted to yeah. go back to it also. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Here's a, the couple of relevant paragraphs. Uh, last month, the investigative journalist, I'm quoting here. Last month, the investigative journalist Seymour Hirsch published an article on Substack, concluding that the United States carried out the operation at the direction of Mr. Biden. In making his case, Mr. Hirsch cited the president's pre-invasion threat to bring an end to Nord Stream and similar statements by other senior U.S. officials. U.S. officials say Mr. Biden and his top aides did not authorize mission to destroy the Nord Stream pipelines, and they say there was no U.S. involvement, all right? But here's a key uh, subsequent paragraph in this New York Times article. Any findings that put blame on Kiev or Ukrainian proxies could prompt a backlash in Europe and make it harder for the West to maintain a united front in support of Ukraine. U.S. officials and intelligence agencies acknowledge that they have limited visibility into Ukrainian decision making. Despite Ukraine's deep dependence on the United States for military intelligence and diplomatic support, Ukrainian officials are not always transparent with their American counterparts about their military operations, especially those against Russian targets behind enemy lines. These operations have frustrated U.S. officials who believe that they have not measurably improved Ukraine's position on the battlefield, but have risked alienating European allies and widening the war. Uh, it, it reads to me as if they're trying to, that this article was leaked, quote unquote, to the New York Times, and they're trying to lay this blame on Ukraine so that they give a viable excuse for the Europeans to break with Ukraine and have this whole thing kind of like dissolve. That's how I'm reading this. And I that, think I, yes. on one page, it's clearly a message from the Biden administration to deflect and say, hey, hey look over there. Oh, sorry, wrong, wrong direction, not at Brian. Look over there. Zelensky re regime, they did it. They're the bad guys. Can, can I make a comment, what you're saying, uh, Gonzalo, and just get... All of your feedbacks. The terror attacks in Bryansk. Do you think they have plays something to do it. with laying plays the groundwork it. for all of this? Yeah. And the fact that the media it. interviewed these guys. Yeah. It plays oh, out. I, that, I, that's, you know, yeah. These crazy Ukrainians, they're doing whatever. They blew up Nord Stream. They shot up some yes. civilians in Bryansk. It's all their fault. We didn't do nothing. I'm, I'm sorry, but that's how I'm reading it. Brian, what do you think? I, I just wanted to point out in this article, they're specifically blaming, they say it's uh, either Ukrainian or Russian nationals who are sympathetic to Ukraine. Number one, there's no technical possibility that so just some group, random group 
did this. That is impossible. It, it had to be a state actor. It was the United States, obviously. Exa almost exactly as Seymour Hirsch laid out. That is how I imagined that it was done. And that that is almost certainly how it was done. But this is the United States. They realize that people are starting to wake up to what's going on. Uh, even with their denials, nobody's buying it. And so they're they're going to throw Ukraine under the bus. They're going yeah. to lose the proxy war. They're going to flush everything down the toilet with Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And I hope people in Kiev are wise to this because they're, they're going to take the, this, that's a, the point of a proxy war is to fight it at someone else's expense. They're complete expense. There's not going to be a dime left or a drop of blood left in, in Ukraine. Yeah. And they're going to look at the feet of Zelensky and the next article is going to be on the front page of the New York Times is going to be talking about Zelensky's corruption and how he's got uh, mansions in Miami and Italy. And it's going to go in that direction. I'm telling you, this is a sign, OK, because it's too absurd to think that it's just randomly. It's on the front page, top of the page, you know, no, breaking it, news. It's, Sorry. I agree with that entirely. And, and I think we can also perhaps now understand a little more about the meeting between Biden and Schultz and this very strange meeting, because one of the things that... Exactly. I mean, this is... Can I just just say, let's pretend, let's pretend that we believe much of what goes on in this, is said in this article, that the United States doesn't really know very much about how Ukraine makes its decisions, that the Ukrainians don't uh, consult and keep the United States informed about how it makes decisions. And it, it regularly does all sorts of things that the US isn't really very happy with and, you know, which are counterproductive. So is that the country you give hundreds of billions of dollars of arms to and uh, hundreds of billions of dollars of financial aid to? I mean, in in a exactly. curious way, this this condemns itself. I mean, it shows how utterly deranged U.S. policy itself was, because it's saying straightforwardly here, well, we're supporting an ally we who can't be trusted, can't be trusted to act rationally. So, you know, I, I, Alexander, let me ask you this, this yeah. question, Alexander, if I, if I may. I mean, yeah. first of all, we agree the absurdity of the article. It's just absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. And anybody who thinks yeah. that the Ukrainians did it is just out to lunch, right? Yeah. So, okay, so this article was clearly planted. It's right on the, front, uh, on the front page, top of the thing of the New York Times. Do you think that this is the pivot? I mean, I, it's crazy that we're actually on this live stream when this is coming out, but do you see this, because I see this, as a pivot where the administration is saying, okay, let's get out from this thing and blame it all on Zelensky? I mean, is this the opening well, salvo in that maneuver? We can't be absolutely sure, but I have to say it does have that look about it. And, I, you know, I, 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 when I, well, we have to be careful. Sure, and, of course. You know, there, may be, there may be different forces pulling in different directions. But Biden has an election to win. He wants to win. He wants to be the president. He, he's seeing a debacle moving in his direction. He's been identified by Seymour Hirsch as the man behind the attack on Nord Stream. He can also, he's undoubtedly been briefed by his military people as well. Uh, you know, the things are not going well for Ukraine. We know all of this. So, you know, there, there, is, a, there is a kind of political imperative to pivot away. And this does look, you, you know, Seymour Hirsch got it all wrong. 
Biden is completely innocent. It was the crazy Ukrainians. Uh, We had that incident with those ultra right wing individuals going into individuals going into Briansk. I agree. Russian nationals. Remember that word. Exactly. (laughs) And I have to hear, I, I think Alex is absolutely right because I did wonder why we were suddenly seeing interviews in the British media with these people. Well, it's just a way of saying, telling us now that there are such people. And you can start to see the way this whole pattern is. All, all, all the pieces are starting to fall into place. Now, we've got to be careful because sometimes, you know, there's always a risk of over-organising uh, things, assuming that, you know, there are these pieces and they do all fit together in the particular yeah, pattern that to us seems attractive. And we've got to be careful. Yeah. But it does seem an interest. It does... It's difficult to understand at this moment this article in any other way than the one you've just said. And by the way, in, in the part that I quoted, they specifically said that they did not think that Zelensky himself yes. was part of this. Yes, so or his top lieutenant. So, so they're yeah. trying. What they're trying to do is flush it down the toilet with someone somewhere in Ukraine, because that, you know, how. How could how could you hold them accountable, especially citing something like the attack into Bryansk? Uh, oh, well, look, they, they're doing all kinds of things. Zelensky has no control. We have no control. It just has a life of its own. So if anything else happens, we'll just blame it on them. Far, even when far it, right, obviously Washington. Far right Russian nationals who are upset with Putin's uh, war are the ones that blew up the pipeline. God That's, damn, this is funny. Perfect. This is funny stuff. I mean, <laughs> no. oh my goodness! You know, because people have the misconception that, of course, these pipelines were just like laying there on the on the sea bottom. No, they're dug in. They they are covered with a layer of sediment, and these pipelines, in order to blow them up, you need hundreds of kilograms of explosives. It's not a simple matter. The only people who could have done it is is some major naval power. And which naval major naval power was conducting exercises right in that area three months before the explosion? I mean, come on, it's it's just laughable to think that uh, you know Ukraine, whose entire navy is at the bottom of the Black Sea, had anything to do with this. It's laughable. I, I can't believe yes. that they floated this. I mean, truly, th- this is a level of contempt for the New York Times readership that is off the charts. I mean, would you guys agree? I'm, I'm sorry for going yeah, on. But, but Gonzalo I, Biden, I, I think that there there is a point that that Alexander made, and and we were talking about this in a video we did a couple of of days ago. Uh, Biden looks like he's going to run. Oh yeah, it looks like he's going to run, and he can't afford another Afghanistan type of debacle. And this would be magnitudes greater than. Than Afghanistan. I mean, he is a few months away from an election cycle, maybe six months tops, and he's got to start, you know, gearing up and campaigning and, and getting all that stuff underway. And so, what are his options? His options are either to continue to to dig into Ukraine, which is becoming more unpopular with the American people, sending more money is becoming more unpopular. He either has to hope for some sort of breakthrough, the spring offensive and it gives them some sort of breakthrough and then he can leverage that to some sort of negotiated victory or whatever or he has to find a way out mm. <laughs> i'm sorry i uh, no, i i alex i completely agree with everything that you're saying okay please don't get me wrong I'm not no wrong. no i mean I'm, 
We'll I, I'm actually for your feedback for you and Brian's and, and Alexander's feedback. That's the way I'm looking mm -hmm. at it because I'm I, saying I, you know, I, I would agree. I, I, I think, running out for the Biden White yeah, House from I, I would, a political standpoint, from a yeah, yeah, campaign yeah. standpoint. And 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 so well, well, what we'll have to see is if this is just a trial balloon in terms of propaganda, or if this this is a start of a real campaign to blame it all on the crazy Ukrainians and we should just dissociate ourselves from the entire conflict. No, and not Ukrainians. Russian nationals. That's well, the Russian I, I, don't, I think that that, that kind of like complicates the issue. It muddies the waters mm. in, in terms of media. True, spin. that's also true. Okay. And so I think it's just easier for them to say, oh, it's the crazy Ukrainians there. They actually are, you know, the Azov and right sector. They really are these crazy, crazy neo ends. So um, yeah, it's them. It's not Zelensky because he's our guy and we're going to have to save him. Maybe. This is part of some arrangement that they'll blame it all on the people below Zelensky and save Zelensky himself. Because in terms of Zelensky, they've invested so much in his persona uh, as this uh, modern day, later day uh, Winston Churchill figure that I don't think it would fly if they threw him under the bus. And so it could be that they're going to blame it all on the people below and say that these crazies below him are the ones that perhaps is the reason he had to flee Kiev for the West, perhaps. I, I don't know. Look, it, it's all too crazy, but I, I'm, I'm truly and honestly stunned. I, I'm not usually this, you know, flabbergasted by an article, but the headline alone is just so laughable to anybody who's been paying attention to even a little bit to this conflict. I, I just, I, I just find it stunning. That desperation, that's yeah. what it is. Yeah. yeah. I agree. I mean, it, it looks to me like a story that's been cobbled together in a huge hurry um, after Seymour Hersh's piece, to be honest. I mean, that's what yes. it looks to but me like. But the piece came out I two mean, months ago, you know? Yeah, I mean, but that isn't a long... That, that you, you need to come up with a response. And I think if you're going to do it, you're going to do it... You, this, is, this is the way you would do it. And I think it does take time to get all the bits together it's been covered by the british media but not by the way very much the british media is downplaying this new york times piece what do you make uh, uh guys about the build going after uh zelensky so yeah. hard no they're not stupid yeah well it could also be part of what has been said that this is a another way of starting to pivot away from um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Zelensky. Yeah. My own, my own personal view about all of these things is that we are still in a situation at the moment where there are different voices pulling in different directions, and I, I think that's an important thing to say. And that there's yeah. still bureaucratic and in, intra-elite and political conflicts going on. There are yeah. some people. The uniformed military are not keen on this. I suspect yeah. some of the people in the bigger um, you know the, the the finance side of the economy. The you know the economics people are not keen on this adventure. Others are deeply committed to it. And there's the Democratic Party in the United States, which is its own electoral interests to worry about. And then there are the more ideological figures within the media and within the administration itself who still want to keep this war going. So I think there's a lot of push and pull going on. 
And I think, you know, you also got to think of these sort of articles, the Bilt Zeitung article, the New York Times article, which we've just been talking about, as manifestations, if you like, of this these constant conflicts that are taking place. But I think its primary purpose is to bury Seymour Hirsch, if I have to be honest. I think yeah, that's yes. what it's principally aimed to do. Yeah, I agree. Uh, the conclusion would be now the U.S. is not opposed to rebuilding the Nord Stream pipeline, which begs the question, did Schultz give Biden his red lines? No, no I, think, I think Germany is going to do whatever the U.S. requires of it, no matter how <laughs> much damage. I mean, they already have. They have already. They are already giving up Germany's future. They already have, and they will continue to do so. I see no one in no. in Germany that is standing up in in any significant, substantial way to the U.S. And unfortunately, I think that that is going to be the whole of Europe that does that. And I don't think there's any end in sight until this whole this whole project yeah. comes to an end. You gotta, you gotta believe that Seymour Hirsch has more stuff up his sleeve with, with his reporting on Nord Stream, correct? Yes, yes, possibly. I'm sure he, I'm sure he does. But as I said, this is the the problem Hirsch has, and as we've seen, is that he has difficulty getting his story circulated. Now he's been able to do it up to a certain point because he's been functioning in a vacuum because the administration hasn't responded. Now they've come up with a story. It may be an utterly ridiculous one, but it provides an alternative narrative to the one that Hirsch has provided. And, you know, if you're back into the world of postmodernism, narrative creations, that kind of thing, you can understand the strategy very well. I mean, bear in mind, if we go back to 2016 with the election, you had the actual facts about how... Hillary Clinton sabotaged Bernie Saunders's campaign. Mm -hmm. And then you have the absolutely fantastical story that it was all part of some giant conspiracy between uh, the Kremlin and uh, um, a virtual TV star and construction magnate to steal the uh, presidential election. And the media went along with the second and buried the first. So you can yeah. see some of that at play here. By the way, I just did a quick uh, global search of the New York Times website. You know, this is the first mention of Seymour Hirsch since 2015. Uh, the first mention of his reporting. So th- that's uh, pretty indicative, I think. Jesus, man. What, what, the, there's this famous phrase from Apocalypse Now. The bullshit piles up so fast you need wings to stay above it. Well, here you go. I mean, it's it's just unbelievable. I, I, I mean, it, it truly is remarkable. And to your point, Alexander, you're absolutely right. Between something very reasonable that the, the Hillary Clinton campaign torpedoed Bernie Sanders and the fantastical Trump and the Kremlin did, they went with the crazy story. Oh, my goodness. My goodness. And it worked. Yeah. And it worked, yeah. And they primed the population for the upcoming proxy war with Russia all at the same time. Correct. Correct. Well, why didn't they, the, they blame the Chinese for the Nord Stream pipeline? Wouldn't that oh, they're going to, don't worry. They, they, don't worry. <laughs> yeah, They've yeah, got they all do. kinds of stories. Yeah, uh, the balloon was just the beginning. Absolutely. Agree. The $12 balloon that was Chinese intelligence. Oh, yeah. 
Oh, man. All right. Let's uh, let's wrap it up there, guys. Sure. I think uh, we've got a lot of a lot of research to do now. <laughs> a, lot, a lot of digging no, I'm, into. I'm, I'm just going to go and sit and laugh as I read the New York Times uh, article because it's just too uh, absurd. You know, I, I think so. Yeah, I think I think I need a strong Scotch after this one yeah. to be honest to try and sort of yeah, settle down. Yeah. So uh, we'll we'll do a dedicated uh, Q and A to to answer the remaining questions. Thank you to everybody that asked us questions. Thank yeah. you to everybody that joined us on this live stream. Thank you to our moderators, Valius, Reckless Abandon, Zariel is in the house. Who else was with us? Uh, w William Justice as well. And um, I think that's... Oh, let me give a shout out to Zariel and Reckless Abandon, who, who are both mods on my channel. Thank you guys so much for modding. Appreciate it. Fantastic. Thank you, guys. Thank you to all the questions. Thank you to the to, uh, to everyone that watched us on Rockfin, Odyssey, Rumble, theduran.locals.com, and YouTube. And thank you to Gonzalo Lira and Brian Berletic. I will have their information in the description box down below and as a pinned comment. Thank you to Alexander Mercurius. Any final thoughts, gentlemen, before we sign off? Well, I think I think we have the most extraordinary <laughs> live stream because at the very end, I mean, you know, this this sort of thing exploded on us out of nowhere. But at least at least this way, at least this way, this has been a tremendous bonus because we've all had an instant, immediate response to this extraordinary story. But it's been yeah. a great live stream altogether, and I think uh, we've all learned um, a lot from it. And it's always great to share and pull views. Yeah, My final just, thought is, oh, I'm sorry, Brian, please, please. No, I, was, I was just going to say uh, the, the West, the United States, they're out of good options. I, I don't think they've had any good options for a long time. And all that is left are worse and worse options. We have to be aware of that and, and be very, uh, keep our eyes open for anything that comes along. And I just want to thank you, uh, Alex and Alexander, for having me on. And as always, Gonzalo, it's a pleasure. I want to thank both uh, Alex and Alexander for having me on. Brian, it's always a pleasure. Uh, and I just want to say that uh, seeing this article appear in the New York Times, I am increasingly convinced that at some point in maybe 2000 or 2001, we exited our actual universe into the multiverse, multiverse but this multiverse is a clownverse. It's, it's just ridiculousness piled on ridiculousness piled on ridiculousness because this doesn't make any sense for any thinking adult god is playing a giant joke on us and and i just want god to end this joke already hit us with the punchline because this is too ridiculous i'm sorry thank you peter also for moderating well said alexander well said brian alexander Everybody that's watching us, take care. Have a good morning, day, or evening, wherever you are in the world.